0: here we are for another garage talk podcast in the garage in south grants past been looking forward to this one i already had a chance to have my grandma in the garage and her other half i don't know if i should say better half because i think you and i would probably both agree that she's a special special piece of work don't you think well you might just say bigger half (laughs) there you go (laughs) it's my grandpa it's andy owen senior and uh, he is here in the garage. It's actually my wife's birthday, so we had a chance to go out and do a little celebrating tonight. Have some pizza, have some delicious food. Had a little ice cream cake. Kids are getting put in bed, and we had a chance to sneak out here in the garage. And so we we're gonna hang out for a bit and chat about some things. How do you feel about coming out here and being a part of this? Could be a little warmer. Well, it's not bad. I've had the heater going for 45 minutes now. It's about 72 degrees in here. Oh, yeah. It'll continue to get warmer. And the nice thing is about this heater is it's not really too loud. It doesn't really pick up too much through the the microphone. So I didn't really think about that. I was telling uh, Vanessa Darpino, the bobsledder from North Valley High School, when she was in last week, that I didn't really plan that well. When I had the idea for the Garage Talk podcast, I didn't really think about the fact that it's going to be December january 30 degrees outside and then it's going to be 40 degrees in the garage so i just got this thing out the old dual mr heater and it seems to be doing decent i've got some of those uh, small space heaters that are,
1: look like torpedo guns oh yeah that um that are on uh, propane but uh time you turn the fan on they're so stinking loud you can't hear anything we take them down when we work cattle mm-hmm. and turn them on but the bad thing about it is everybody wants to talk to everybody because you know you got to do this, you got to do that. And they can't hear, so
0: I got to turn them off. So then you freeze to death. Yeah. The nice thing about this one, it's the double. So I just I get the double going, and then I shut off one side as soon as we come out here. That way, it kind of tones down the noise, and for the most part, it doesn't pick up too bad. So it makes it somewhat comfortable considering it's. Uh, yeah. I mean, at this point, it's eight fifteen at night. and That's probably what forty degrees outside, and uh, for the most part fairly comfortable in here and it may get warm it may get cool I guess that depends on uh, where we go with this thing be like uh the old farmer deal you got a cowboy up which you've done that a time or two yeah I mean you're outside working today on the excavator tearing up some land getting any
1: more every time I go out I got to make sure I got my scarf on I was running my little excavator all day today and I had my coat on and my scarf on because I had my neck fused about seven vertebrae and Boy, when that all that iron gets cold, it's cold—about as cold as you're ever gonna get.
0: Is that weird having that on the inside and having it be cold from the inside out? Yeah. Well, no, it just—it's just cold everywhere. So. Really? Yeah. There's no inside
1: outside. It's just when uh, get gets cold, I'm incapacitated. Then, of course, I got a iron knee on my right side, and when they the two of them get cold, well, I can't walk and I can't move my neck, so i
0: must gotta find a stove still doing pretty well for what 81 years old and yeah been on the move for a long time and been able to accomplish quite a few things and those are some of the things i want to talk about as we get in the podcast and a lot of things that have happened over the years that we'll touch on but um we'll come back to that in a few minutes but i want to go back all the way from the very beginning because i think there's some things i probably don't know but i wanted to learn a little bit about and just so people can get familiar with you because Uh, Our family, for anyone who listened to the first podcast, they probably heard me talk about the trucking company and a little bit. We touched on it briefly with grandma, not a whole lot. Maybe we'll get into a little bit more here, but um, I want to go back to the early days because I know I've heard my mom, which is your daughter, talk about some of the early days for you and where you grew up, but I really don't know a whole lot about that. So uh, tell me a little bit more about that and where you were born and where you grew up.
1: I don't know where I was born. I was there, but I don't remember it, you know, I was born in L.A like i think everybody in the world was born in la uh we all say things about californians but doggone it you got to be awful careful but uh i was born in la my my folks moved up to nevada my dad ran harold's club which is now uh, closed down for about five years we moved back to new mexico where my dad was born and raised up out of albuquerque and uh We lived there until I was in the third grade, and my mom got sick, and my dad was an undersheriff of Bernalillo County, which is a deputy uh, right underneath the sheriff, and um, so we moved to started our track across Route 66, and um, made our way to Medford, and dad worked there at a uh, dealership for a while, uh, doing body and fender work. He was really crafty at a lot of different things, and And finally one day he said, uh, well, we sold all of our property in New Mexico, so he had a pocket full of money, and he didn't really have to work for a while. And so he says, you know, we want to go to Washington. So we went across 199 and uh, up 101, the old 101, and uh, went in the backside of Portland. And I remember when we got into Portland— they still had the old streetcars, and part of them was pulled by horses, uh, and I I just couldn't believe it. Well, like back up just a little bit. When we left New Mexico, my dad had a brand-new 1947 Mercury because he was on the police force, and you used your own car for your quad car. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all of them up to that one that was during the Second World War and with the end of the Second World War why he got a 47 he had a 46 Mercury and um, up till that time he had the big siren on the left fender and he had a red light on his car and uh, but that particular one he knew he was gonna leave so he never put any of that stuff on his car So when we left, we had just a generic big black Mercury car and uh, we headed across. Well, we got to Medford and uh, he went to work one day and this guy offered him about a third more than what he paid for that Mercury. Well, he come home with a little Chevy pickup and the Mercury stayed in Medford because he sold it and my mom wouldn't hardly talk to him because she loved that car. And so here was this little Chevy pickup, and I don't remember what year it was, but it was in the 40s. And so we put whatever thing we had in the back of that pickup and headed across and up into Portland. And it took us several days, quite a few days, because then you had to go up through Brookings and Carpenterville and up over and into Gold Beach and all the way up. So it took us about a week to go up the coast. And we ended up in Centralia, Washington. My dad worked for a Dodge Plymouth dealer there. And I went through the all of grade school, the rest of grade school. Third grade was the longest two years of my life.
0: <laughs> I caught that. Yeah. Longest two years oh, yeah. of my life. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well I had a teacher that really liked me a lot in the third grade. And Thought so, they'd keep you around
0: for a while? Yeah.
1: Yeah, it kept me for a little while longer than what I wanted. But uh then my dad become uh, my mom. <coughs> my mom uh, was running George Warehouser's office in Centre at the time. It was a small office. He just had a satellite office, and my dad started logging for Werhauser. And uh, we we left there at the end of my eighth grade year and moved down to North Bonneville, and Dad logged there. I I was scared to death to go to high school. I I didn't know why, but when I got in high school, I went to Military Academy in Portland, Oregon. And I was about two weeks in, and my English teacher said, Owens, you can't see. I said, Doctor, I can see fine. He says, you can't see, you can't read, and that's why you're stumbling along trying to get by. You read with one eye. He says, I've been watching you. Took me downtown and found out I had dyslex- a form of dyslexia. My eyes were what they called identical eyes. They didn't focus. And I have to have prism, and I still have to have prism in my eyes. But that I ended up graduating from high school fifth in my class. And uh, I went two years to military academy, and I found out I wasn't stupid. And uh, my dad always kind of ridiculed me because I had a hard time learning And it's because I couldn't focus my eyes, I couldn't see math, I was like a genius in math, because you don't have to really see real hard. Mm -hmm. But reading, oh man, I just assumed somebody beat me to death.
0: Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because, as you know, I was dyslexic, Right. I have a daughter that was dyslexic, and, and lucky for me, the same lady in Medford still doing her thing, Treasure Wheeler, who I saw over 30 years ago, and my daughter had a chance to go to her. But there's a lot of kids who are not diagnosed with dyslexia, and people just think they're stupid, and well, they have no idea. And luckily for me, someone figured it out. And in your case, same thing, someone figured it out, and it probably changed your life because of it. Oh yeah, it.
1: Uh, well, as you know, your uncle Pat, my our youngest boy, had a form and um, of it, and that's how we found Doctor Wheeler in Medford, and mm-hmm. your grandma, and she's still doing. Uh, counseling uh, for people that, that have eye problems.
0: Yeah, she's a miracle worker as far as I'm concerned. <coughs> um, I mean, what she did for me, I had no idea at the time. You know, I was in kindergarten. I really didn't understand what was going on. Obviously, I knew I had to go to Medford and go see a specialist, but I didn't think it was maybe as big of a deal as, at the time as it really was, and I didn't realize at the time the impact that it would have on me later on down the road oh, yeah uh but she had a huge impact on my life and i even had a chance to tell her that recently which is cool because i never thought i would see her again well pat and ryan
1: had they went to her too oh really? See, i didn't it, realize it, that it's predominantly it's a prison it's a it's a problem in the men uh in our family and it seems to have that that problem but uh i guess mine is really not called dyslexia but it's kind of interesting i went to a i decided i didn't want to wear glasses anymore so i got a hold of a guy a doctor in in uh, portland that did this slice and dice rk they called it at the time i I don't think they even do that anymore
0: is it kind of like a lasik surgery but it is before it's not
1: LASIK. they slice your eyes okay With a knife. I mean, it's it's like they did nothing to me, but um, I didn't wear my glasses in for quite a while, and pretty soon I thought, man, I can't see. I can't see for sour grapes, you know. And so I finally went back to my doctor in Myrtle Creek. Great guy, and I told him what I did. I was kind of embarrassed, you know. You're gonna gonna get away from a guy buying glasses and getting your eyes thing. I thought that was gonna be the answer. And, but I told him, and the doctor said, Andy, I wish i had have known you was going to do that. I wouldn't have talked you out of it, but I would have told you. You have to have prism in your glasses for the rest of your life. So there really was no way around it. There's no way around it. He says your eyes are not that bad per se, but you have to have something in your glasses that's going to pull your eyes together so you can read. And there it was. It's that yeah, simple. that simple. And so uh, every once in a while I go back and get another new set of glasses. Generally I'm grinding or something and hit a grinding spot or welding and I get something on my glasses and and I'll met, go along with it for a while pretty soon I'll go get another
0: set of glasses. I'm tired of looking at that spot on my glasses. Kind of like when you get the rock in the windshield of the car. Yeah. Or it's, it's just a little bit too big and it's yeah. right there between your eyeballs and you get tired of looking at it. So you mentioned that you went to the military academy in Portland for a couple of years. At what point did you end up in Glendale? Because for people listening who who don't really know anything about you, you guys have been in Glendale for a very long time, but how did you end up there and did you come there from, so you were at military school in Portland, but you were, your family was in Centralia? Is that well, still? My, or is well, that, my
1: folks moved down to North Bonneville, or North Logan. logging. Okay. And then my dad, he, he kind of like a nomad, but he... he heard about the logging down here in Glendale. And so he made a trip down and he bought a piece of timber and then there was some mills in Glendale that wanted him to log for him. And so he came down here and he was, I don't know, he was running about four sides at the time and four sides at that time was a lot of people. And I still was going to military school. And so then I started coming down here and that's when I met your grandma, is when I was still going to military school. And my dad was logging. Well, I was going to go, I wanted to go more than anything, just about to go to West Point of the Air because it had just opened up, which is the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. And I thought, man, I want to fly. I wanna, that's what I want to do. And I thought I had things set up. I, I don't know if I could have made it scholastically enough because the first year, eight years of my life, I lost too much by not being able to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I don't know if they would have let me fly with glasses, and I had to have glasses. Um, I don't know what they do today on um, uh, the things they put in your... Uh,
0: contact lenses. Contact
1: lenses. I don't know what they'd do today, whether the guys fly with them or not, because there's such ungodly pressure. Uh, when you're flying those jets now, whether if you fly heavy stuff, it's not not you don't have the G's and stuff. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, I I when my folks moved down here and then I met your grandma, and I just said no, I that's it, and I finished my two years of high school at Glendale. I um, I had to make a choice whether I wanted to continue to pursue going to the academy, or whether I wanted to pursue going to school down here
0: and eventually marrying your grandma. What was it about the airplanes that had so much appeal to them? I just loved the military.
1: And I didn't want to go in as a ground pounder, Uh, not that I had anything against it. I didn't want to go in as a Marine. I get seasick, so that kind of kind of ruled that out mm-hmm. um we had link trainers at the academy because it was the last we were the first year that it was not a certified rotc before that the government ran it and they had link trainers there and they had five of them and we put um out of the five we made one fly uh or it didn't actually fly it was nil uh, for night flight it was a training set on a deal and ran with gyros and stuff And two other guys, Bobby Ellis, who his father owned Ellis Airline, Ketchikan Airlines in Ketchikan, Alaska. And he became the first president of uh, Alaska Airline. And it's all on, I I got to see that when I went to Anchorage uh, with Ted and Seal Booth, uh, their sons up there. And we went to the Air Museum, and there it was. And and it, it made me feel so good to know that I knew this guy that started the airlines, and, you and went I to knew he went him? to school with his son. Okay, and then I went to sc- then the other guy that was there was John Nelson and his dad started Pacific Northern Airlines, and the three of us become air buffs I mean, we just we spent all, we didn't have no money to go anywhere it's on the weekends, so we just went to the room where this Link Trainer was, and we had all the baggage, all the. The mechanical uh, drawings and everything, and how it's supposed to be put together, and we put it together. And so, one to take a turn in the old link trainer, and then the next one, and then the next. One. We had thousands of hours. Of that thing, probably, I don't know. We never kept track. But I, uh, I love to fly. It, it's boring, in a way, but it's, it's you.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. For a while there, I thought I wanted to fly helicopters, but. I didn't really think I was smart enough in the instruments and I don't know, maybe it was (coughs) part of that could have been the dyslexia talking. I don't know, but I just never pursued it and I don't know. I've had a chance to fly in helicopters a little bit and uh, it's cool. It's cool for sure. But I, I don't know. I don't know if I'd trust myself enough to do it, you know? Well, the thing of it is uh, I could
1: see why they always have young people flying and when you get to a certain age, uh, like fighter fighter pilots, you lose what they call your edge. In other words, you're right on the. You ever, ever heard this the saying? You're right on the ragged edge. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's your ragged edge. And I've ran equipment all my life, all my life. I was 11 years old when I was building roads road for my dad in the woods, and. I could put a cat any place, uh, any type of ground or anything, and run shovel just right on. You knew what you could uh, pick up and stuff. But I've noticed the last 15 years on certain pieces of equipment, I've lost a lot of my edge, most of my edge, where I have to make sure it's on solid ground. Mm -hmm. When it starts to tip, I'm, I'm not as I, – I lose that ability to think quick. Just that reaction time. That reaction time. And it's kind of interesting. There's a young man in our, our neighborhood, Chris Nace, and he's got, I think, four airplanes now. He just got another T-6. And um, he's got one of those aerobatic ones that can go up and spin around and do all that. It's, it's a home-built, but it's, an, it's it's really a certified airplane. It's great and I got to ask him one day. He's got a construction company there in Glendale and runs cats and stuff. And I said, uh, Chris, you ever notice uh, your edge is starting to get different? Your your reaction time uh, and stuff is getting uh, less and less. He come up to me one day and he said, Andy, he says, I know exactly what you're talking about. He says, my reaction time is probably half of what it used to be. My edge is half of what it used to be. And I, I felt good about that because I, I brought attention to him that when you get older, and he's older than, than you. you see, he's about Andy's age. And uh, So he's right around 60. Yeah, he's around like 60s. And so, yeah, so when you get that age you better realize that you sure you can take off you can land you can do all those types of things but if something happens and when you're flying it's just like running a cat or doing anything like that uh, you you shouldn't even think about well I got to take this hand to do this and this hand to do that and I got to hold oh, my foot I got to step on this pedal And that stuff, it should just be reactionary. nature. nature, where it's just a part part of you.
0: Exactly. That's exactly it. And it's one of those things that just, it just happens.
1: I've flown with people that it's like by the numbers, digital, and I just say, oh, my God, I'm going to get a hold of this wheel here and be ready because (laughs) we could Peter Pan down on that runway. Uh, And my brother, the oldest one was, he flew on B-36s in the Air Force. He was probably the best pilot I've ever went with in my whole life. He, it was nothing to him. It was just like he was wearing
0: it. And uh, I loved to fly with him. Do you think any part of that was the way you grew up? I mean, you talked about running equipment at 11 years old. Did he have a chance to run equipment and do those types of things too? Yeah, we always have. And I just wonder how much of that ended up helping him later on. Because I know for us, and you know, yeah. we had a chance to grow up on the ranch and so we learned how to drive the tractor early on we learned how to drive the old Ford Courier and uh, if we could reach the pedals and grab the gear shift and get the clutch in all the way or maybe even if we couldn't get it in all the way we're, we're going to shift gears and go for it and learn how to do it and I just wonder how much of that early experience actually helped well, later they, on because yeah. you're developing those skills earlier they talk about musicians that start playing at a very young age you know, three, four years old how much better they end up being when you start younger and I'm just, I'm curious and, and I, I don't know how we would know. Maybe there's studies on it. I don't know. But I'm just curious of uh, your thoughts on that. Well, I, I have my father.
1: I tried to be like my dad. I love my dad very well. A tremendous amount. Um, he always let me do whatever I thought I could do if I was ready for the consequences. And and so saying that, he said, if you drive that pickup at 80 miles an hour and something happens, you better be ready for the consequences of what's gonna happen when the consequences hit. And so that's why he let me drive Cat when I was real young. Don't be stupid on it, he taught me how to do it, what to do and stuff. If I went outside of the parameters of that, be ready for the consequences. And the same with you kids, my kids, your grand your mother, and your aunt, your uncles, I taught them the same way. You know, you can go do it. Let's I'll show you the best way I can, but be ready for the consequences. If you can't back up what you're doing. Yeah. And then when you kids come along, same thing. Now that we've got great grandkids and they got the same thing if they're out there with me i'll show them how to do the stuff they're like you guys well our kids all learned how to drive the pickups out in the field on their on their knees Mm -hmm. we put it in gear they couldn't reach no pedals they would teach them how to shut
0: it off yeah just kill it that was it yeah and it was a huge help and i think that that's one of the things that's really lost these days is everyone wants things to be perfect the first time and so there's really not that opportunity to learn and make mistakes and i've been thinking about this a lot lately as you know we see things that happen on social media or in the news media whereas people make a mistake and they're crucified it's like it's the worst thing ever i brought this up the other day that you know, people make mistakes, and the only way we're going to learn is by making those mistakes and then learning not to do that next time. Well, they yeah. learn
1: the consequences. Yeah, and as long as it's being not being stupid, um, I guess one of the prime examples of that is when Pat, our youngest boy, was riding behind another young fella. He knew he wasn't supposed to be there. And he went up the road, and they was both cooking right along, and they hit a pickup head-on. He knew he wasn't supposed to, and he paid the consequences. And that's a prime example of be ready to pay the consequences of whatever you do, if it's right or wrong. Be ready to pay the consequences. And he was, and so he chose. He chose what he wanted to do. Yeah. I mean, he didn't want to hit the pickup. Mm-mm. but he knew because he had been taught that if something happens, be ready. And so that's, that's what I tried to teach all of you kids when you was growing up as much as I could. My kids, your aunts and uncles and your mom. I taught your mom how to drive truck. I taught your aunt how to drive semis, taught your grandma, your uncle how to. And, uh, they all knew how to do it very well. Yeah. I you t- think your mother finally gave up her CDL. Did she? She used to run with me going hauling out of produce out of El Central and and stuff when we was hauling out of there and Bly. Yeah, once in a while I'd need help. And she'd say, I'll go with your Dad. She's a good driver,
0: excellent driver. So I want to know how, because you mentioned and touched on you know, paying <coughs> – paying the price and suffering the consequences of of doing something that you knew better and uh, for people listening you're talking about losing your youngest child and what was that what what was that like for you I know I had grandma in here had a chance to talk about that with her I know there's a lot of people starting to listen to this podcast and there's people that are going to lose children it happens for many different reasons whether it's an accident or cancer Um, but what was that like for you well, it was naturally it was devastating.
1: Marion and I were and are extremely close to our kids and our great grandkids and our grandkids all of our family were extremely close to and pat it you couldn't never bring him back um. It's just a, a, an empty spot in your heart for your whole life. And what was really hard, and I hope anybody that listens to this will take it, take it to heart, that if somebody you know loses a child, especially a child that's, he was 11 years old, full of life, don't walk up to the people that lost this child. And say, I feel so sorry for you. I know what you're going through. If you haven't lost a child, please don't say that. It just tears your guts out. Because you don't know what we're going through. You don't know what we've gone through. You don't know what the rest of the family's gone through. You mean well, but it's just hurtful in a way, in, in the wrong way. Um, I used to just, somebody come up to me and I just want to turn around and cry and walk away because it, uh, I still have a hard time with it and I try, you know, I'm, we talk about it, uh, grandma and I do and the kids, but that, that's one of the things if anybody that ever listens to this can take away from it is that's, that would be the best thing. It's just uh, give them a hug. Just be there for people. And we had, we have some close friends that would just come sit with us and maybe not say nothing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But it's uh, losing a kid. We have th- Somebody said one time, well, you got three other kids, you know, and I, I wanted to hit them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Every kid in my my family is special. All my grandkids are special, whichever one I'm with. I I have no favorite, but they're all favored. Um my great grandkids. I told my, my family, I says, when I die, bury me where the kids are at. I don't want to be where them old goats are at. <laughs> you know. Yeah. I just I just wanna
0: I wanna live life with the kids, you know. That's what it's all about. Well, and I think that goes a long ways too, because I know growing up watching all of you guys and the way you you know taught us different things and were willing to let us go out there and try things out and see how it worked out for us and and having fun at the same time. I talk about that a lot, and it's we can live this life. We can be angry, or we can have fun and we can have a good time, and it's it's it can be an awesome life when you decide you want to have fun and embrace it and yeah there's things that aren't always fun and you have to deal with those things, but not taking yourself too seriously well it's
1: uh i have never talked to anybody that's been here before um so you need to grab that bass ring all the when you can the first go round because and uh be a. I feel so sorry for how many kids do we have in our school in Glendale that don't have both parents? Mm -hmm. A lot. Or maybe they don't have any parents. I heard the other day that we have, I think it's less than 20 kids that are homeless going to school.
0: Homeless. Yeah, I heard a staggering statistic the other day. That there's hundreds of kids, hundreds in the Medford school district that are homeless, and it may be more than that. I, I think it was more than that. I'm trying to lowball it because I don't yeah. know the number. Well, I don't
1: know either for sure, but it's it's a uh, it's part of it is because they don't want to adhere to any rules. That's part of it. that used to be the only reason because they didn't want to adhere to the old man's rules. You know, you know, be in by ten o'clock or you get your studying done or da 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 da. But now, it's not, that's probably 5%. It's drugs, divorce, divorce and drugs, um, alcohol. Um, You know, it's, and I don't know that our cost of living, of course, everybody talks about the cost of living and I say, well, yeah, it's pretty high. Very high. Mm-hmm. But everybody wants everything. And when you go to Costco, you go to Home Depot, there's all this stuff to buy. And you're trying to figure out how to buy it all. And, and oh, I got a piece of plastic in my pocket. And so you give them that plastic and you come back out, and, man, you got it. And you look at all of the things that you have. of it isn't paid for.
0: If you're the average American couple, you know. Yeah, most American households are in tens of thousands of dollars. That's where our debt debt. is. People don't understand where our
1: national debt is. The national debt is credit cards, home mortgages, and stuff, and that's where they say the national debt is. Is how many dollars do we have on the books? That's Mm -hmm. why when the wheel quits turning, everything starts falling in because nobody can
0: meet the debts yeah so i want to back up a little bit because speaking of that i mean obviously (laughs) you have to uh you have to work hard to better your situation you learn to work hard at a very young age uh i'm assuming from your parents and the influence there because i know for me it was you guys and my parents where i learned how to work and um, as you started working, as you got out of high school, what did that look like? What did you end up doing once you got out of high school? Whatever I could find. No, actually,
1: that's not true. I uh, uh, I had worked at some jobs in the summertime and and ran cat and stuff for people. Back then, they didn't you know there was no big laws about you got to be this age to do this. Or if you could climb on a cat, you could go to work.
0: Um, and we're talking mid-50s-ish? Oh yeah, it was, it was it
1: in, was in, in the mid to late 50s. I graduated in 57. Like I say, the third grade was the longest two years of my life. Mm-hmm. So I was one year behind your grandma, although I'm a month or two older than her. Um, but when I graduated from high school, I, hmm, I got to get, get a job because your mom was here. She was wanting food. And I went over, got a job on construction running CAT, building Highway uh, Interstate 5 for a company out of Portland. And then the CAT I was running, they decided they was going to shut it down because it was on that rock bluff over there by Tri-City. And so then I went over to Merlin and got a job with Peter Kiewit running Scraper. And I never knew one thing about a scraper, nothing. I knew how to raise and lower the can. That was about it. And I told the old boy, guy was from, from uh, South Carolina, John Sharp, and I told him I says, "I've never ran one, but if you'll give me a chance, I'll I'll do good for you." And so he watched me go up in and out of the cut, you know. Pretty soon he says, uh, "I he." got it going and everything, and i was, I was, have to shift gears and stuff. It was a Caterpillar DW-21. Pretty soon he come up to me and he says, Owens, you don't know nothing about this, do you? <laughs> and I says, no sir, I don't. But I said, I sure do need this job. And uh, I'm married, and I graduated from high school, and I want to learn. He said, all right. I'm going to put you with these two guys, Tony Volch and Jay Sharp. And it was two scraper operators and one cat operator. We pioneered every ounce of the freeway from the Merlin Hugo exit to the Merlin exit on I-5 when it was four lane. I, I pioneered every bit of that. Started the slopes and f- finished them. And then the next year went over to the coast because they, had Highway 101, the whole bid from Brookings to Pistol River was opened up to for bids, and there was Peter Kiwitt, Morse Knutson, Darkenwald and Harms, and uh, M.K. Uh, that was it. It was those those companies, and I went to work for Kiewit up up there on the coast until the winter hit, and uh, then. Things was slow here, and we went to Seattle, worked for Boeing for 14 months. I was a tool and die maker. Worked on the, it's kind of interesting, the outer space platform that they got going now, the space station or whatever you want to call that. uh, I worked on the mock-up of that
0: in 1958 and 59. So when you went to Seattle to go to Boeing, it was just because work had dried up down here. Yeah. And you were just trying to find something to to feed.
1: Yeah. I didn't know. Well, we had a big migration of people, Bill Sether, uh, Billy Hale, um, um, Clifford Smith. There was a bunch of us. They'd already gone up there. And uh, I thought, well, they're there. They says, yeah, we think we can get you on. I called them and talked to them, so I went up there, and that's how I got on. You have to take a test,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, so I got, I got on as tool and die maker, and I was, uh, I was a grunt kind of thing, but uh, fourteen months. By that time, we had your mom and your uncle, and I, it was so miserable weather. I told your your grandma, I says, Pack your bags. We're gonna go home and I don't care what I gotta do. We'll find a job and we'll <coughs> we'll we'll get we'll get we'll get to work down there. So she called her dad. He brought a U Haul trailer up and a pickup and we
0: migrated home. And are we to the sixties yet at that yeah. point? Right around there? <coughs> Sixty. So 1960, you moved back to Glendale, Oregon, and what do you do when you come home? Actually, uh,
1: second day here, I got a job so setting chokers for a logger here in town, a big logger. And then uh, I went to work uh, for him for quite a while, and they phased out, went broke. Uh, actually, Doug Dollar uh, sold out, and uh, then I went to work for Barry and um, I started high climbing, rigging spar trees and stuff, and then I went for caveman lumber. Well, let's see, I went to work for Dale Johns. Dale Johns asked me to to come set up his yarder shows for him, because he had never yardered, he'd always been a cat logger. So I did that, and then I had a, I was pulling rigging for him, and I had a log roll over me and crushed me in 63. Sixty-three, yeah, I think sixty-two or sixty-three, and uh, uh, then I got out. I got out, went back in the, went back in the mill, and I became head head lathe operator for uh, Robert Dollar. And then in seventy-two, they were going to lay him off again at the end of seventy-two and I was good friends with the superintendent I'd left and went over to Roseburg and come back and so I lost my seniority and so he said uh, I said I want to buy a truck he said you buy a truck I'll keep you busy haul and veneer I said that sounds good to me so December 24th 1972 I bought my first truck
0: Been at it ever since. All right, so hold it right there. We're gonna pause because I want to back up a little bit. We talked about the log rolling over over you in the woods. Is that when you lose part of your foot, or was that no? I lost that in a mill. Okay, so for people listening right now, and you don't know, the guy sitting across the table from me here in the garage is a very unique individual in many ways, but he will not hesitate to tell you that he has a foot and a half, and he's talking about his. Literal feet. He has a foot and a half a foot, and has freaked out many of our friends over the years by pulling off his shoe at overnight sleepovers. And there's only a half of a foot, and telling them that you got a bit off by an alligator. Yeah, I got that. That
1: happened in of an airplane. I got a caught in a sprocket, and it went around and around and it screwed up my ankle and stuff. Uh, that was in '63.
0: So what happened? I know you say it, you it got went it went into a, in a sprocket, sprocket we, the sprocket
1: up on the charger. Okay, up on the charger on the lathe. I was running lathe, and I and my foot slipped into this. We should have had a guard on it, but we didn't. And it's the, the charger is what brought the legs in, the logs into the lathe.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then the there was a big chain that went over and, and back. And when it went back, after I put the log into the uh, to the lathe and, and told the charger to go back, you just hit a lever and it went back automatically. Well, my, I turned, when I turned, my foot went like that. Well, you know, it just sucked it right sp- in yeah. there. And I sucked it right under and it went round and round and round in that. So did it throw you down when no, it sucked your foot it in? It just, or- it just screwed my ankle up. Ugh. And then, then I, it, it, when I finally got it, the charger stopped from going back about midway. I reached up and hit the lever and stopped it. Then I had to take and bring it forward in order to get my foot out. Mm, so run it back through. Yeah, I had to run it. It was halfway around. It was on the back side of this pocket, like back here, and it's going to yeah. go this way, see? And uh, I had to go that way. Well, then the tricky part was was I, I blew the whistle for the superintendent to come down. It was at night, and I blew it down, and he'd come down there. Well, the, up on the platform where the lathe operator is, there's not a lot of room. So, and then you got stairs that go down to the catwalk that goes out and then you go up past that big chipper. And um, I didn't want him packing me out of there. Because I was scared, I dug one guy out of that chipper, all the mop, and He fell in that thing and chewed him
0: up. Ooh, which is but, way worse than getting your foot cut off. Yeah, yeah,
1: well I could just vision. Dropping me off the gurney onto that thing, you know. And I thought, no, I can, I'm still cooking, you know. Let's get me out of here. So, and I, I left my boot on, what was left of it. And I, I got out of there, and, and I, I got down off the lathe and went on myself but out to past that chipper. And then the, the gurney was down at the bottom in the ambulance. And uh, I laid on that, and I kind of passed out. And I never heard at all until I got about top of Mount Sexton and it thawed out because it just mashed it, you know, mm-hmm. to my boots. And uh, it started thawing out, man, it was hurting. I, I mean, I was, I was a, in desire, need of something to knock the pain out. So when we got in the hospital, that's the first thing I told them, I don't care what you
0: do, you just knock me out. So did they knock you out? Well, pretty much. What do you remember after that? Did you? Did you? Oh well, yeah,
1: here comes the doctor. His name is Doctor Bush. He was an alcoholic, and uh, he had been drinking because this was in the evening. You know, about nine thirty or so, ten o'clock. He had been drinking. I didn't care, man. I just we had to do something.
0: Yeah, he bring an extra I,
1: six pack with them? Cause, yeah,
0: <laughs> I was just started in on one right there.
1: i wouldn't let him uh (coughs) cut my boot off because i didn't know what was going to happen as it turned out i probably should have because my ankle just blew up because it was all screwed up and um but he got it all off and everything and he come out and told your Told your mom, your grandma. Well, we had to go up here and cut it off up here and stuff, and so it it was pretty ugly. And he told me he says it's going to be ugly because he said uh, we're trying to save your ankle. I said, and the flap that they had to use from the bottom of my foot, you know your bottom of your foot's pretty calloused. I mean, it's pretty tough skin. We had to soak it in. Um, dawn soap dish uh, hot water with Mm -hmm. dawn soap in it to all the time once we got it home but i told the doctor i said i'll use elmer's glue to glue it on you ain't taking my ankle and so i have a prosthesis in my shoe kind of helps but i don't know i get
0: along fine well i would say so i don't think most people would even have any idea if you didn't tell them yeah well, I don't know if you was, We uh, remember we used to water ski above
1: Savage Rapids all the time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I come back in, I was the first one in the family to step, start in the bank because I couldn't hardly deep water start. I'm a pretty good sized guy, you know, and it's a lot of horse meat to come up out of the water. So I step started and well, we went up and we made that big turn up there and we come back through and went back down to the dam and we come back up through and they dropped me off. Well, this little boy he must have been five or six was on the down in the water and and his grandparents were at a car up above watching him and everything and so when i let let go of the rope then i just kind of glided in you know and i reached down picked up my ski i was slalom skiing and i said man that water's rough out there dan i said those alligators Man, they're they're tough. They, they're they tough today. And this little boy says, uh, there ain't no alligators out there. And I said, there sure enough is. Oh, no, they're not. And I raised my foot up where he could see it. And he looked at that, and he says, "Show enough. And, boy, he got out of that water. <laughs> His grandma and grandpa was up there on the pick in the car. And they just laughed, and they laughed. And every time I'd take off and come back in, and drop off. He says, "Any alligators out there?" <laughs> That's funny. All right,
0: well, I had to hear the official story because I don't think I would ever heard it before. But I want to jump back to right around. What'd you say? Uh, late seventies, was it, when you decided to buy your first truck and leave working on the mill? Is that when it was? Mid seventies.
1: Yeah, seventy. It was when I got when I bought my first truck. Yeah.
0: Well, it was in 72. Okay, early 70s, my bad. Okay, I, I jumped way ahead for yeah. some reason, but I've been bouncing all over. So, All right, so let's go back to 1972. You buy your first truck, and the guy at the mill says he's going to keep you busy, and you decide to venture out on your own. You've got your own truck. What was that like? A lot of hard work. Yeah. As long as I
1: could keep going. Slept over the steering wheel a lot. And you're out on the road, and
0: where are you hauling loads to? Been
1: here. Uh, like I'd pull— I hauled for the comp for uh, Robert Dollar uh, back into Glendale to start with. And I'd pull like um, two, three loads out of Norway, which is over by Myrtle Point, back to Glendale in a day. Uh, Some days I'd pull uh, two loads out of Cresswell, that big mill up there at Cresswell, Forest Products, when they had that. One out of
0: Medford, then start all over again. So when you decided to get your first truck, were you thinking at that time that you were just going to get a truck and you're going to make a few know. dollars and make it a living, or you didn't have any plans? No plans. and Build the trucking company. You just thought I'm going to buy a truck and I'm going to drive a truck instead of working the mail. Oh, I'm going to make as much as
1: I can, and um, I just wanted to my family to have as much as we could have, and uh, I didn't want to work for somebody else. And then after I Got, things slowed up, um, first part of 74, I think it was, 74, 75, yeah, 75, and I bought a reefer because the local veneer and mills was struggling, and so I bought a refrigerated trader, and I had a friend that had got me a haul in Seattle. And so I started, that's when your mother actually ran with me quite a bit uh, in the wintertime out of El Centro and Raleigh and down through there, back to Seattle. I'd pull one trip one week and two the next back to Seattle. And uh, Hall Pear South, Apple South, um, Shakes South. And then I started getting, the, the, the wood started coming back. And so we started picking up that and your uncle, Bob, he, he drove for me. Your dad drove for me, uh, hauling produce, hauling veneer, different things.
0: And for those of you listening, those aren't uncles from your side of the family. Those are, th- that's my dad, your dad, who and your married uncle, your daughter eventually. And my uncle who uh, your uncle, Bob was a really yeah. fun guy to be around. And, um, so they both drove for you, and this is before my mom and dad got married. This is years before that happened. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, and so we've all been around one another most of our life, you know, a lot of our lives. but um, then I went I got become a broker, uh, freight broker. Uh, I was the second oldest in in the state of Oregon alder brothers trucking or uh Surratt out of eugene was a truck broker and then he turned me in for broker without a broker's license so i had a bunch of guys went together with me and we went to court and got my license
0: so you were brokering without a broker license and i was
1: brokering and yeah i was brokering whatever you could do you know I <laughs> just mean, making
0: deals and selling yeah, stuff yeah yeah so, because for people who don't know, when you're brokering something, you're basically the middleman, right? Like you're yeah, you're a middleman. You're yeah. buying up and then you're selling. <coughs> no,
1: actually, what on truck transportation, you you'd secure
0: the loads. Okay, I was thinking of wood, but okay, go ahead. You,
1: you'd secure the loads, and the load would pay you uh, say hundred bucks, and I was taking eight percent. That was the least anybody took. Most everybody took 10 and 12, but I took eight. And because I was still trucking, too. I mean, I had trucks running, uh, just two or three. And, uh, and I just wanted the guys to be able to make money. And so I had a quite a parcel of them hauling for me, and I picked up a lot of, the, most of the veneer hauling in southern Oregon, central Oregon, you know, up to Eugene area and stuff. And um, it was kind of interesting. I I even had another brokerage company that I was running, a a national brokerage company, and I was brokering um, ocean spray, treetop, um, high country, frozen foods, and some of it was just canned foods all over the United States. And then... The deregulation hit, so I mine was a special permit that I had to do that with, and so when deregulation, well, everybody took off after it. And somebody asked me, he said, "Andy, what did, what did deregulation do for you?" I said, "Well, if you really want to be truthful, it made me legal, because I always had the adage: if I was going to pay the, pay uh, the PUCs to run my truck down the road, it didn't matter what was in it." whether it was supposed to be a regulated commodity like plywood, I could haul a veneer, but I couldn't haul the plywood because I didn't have the authority. And at that time, authority, you'd get it for a certain area, you'd get it for a certain state. Just get to it haul there. a certain product? Any product, yeah. For every product you wanted to haul that was regulated, you had to have a special authority. I hauled for a continental can out of the Bay Area. And my God, I had more authority, filings and stuff to get for them because they had about four or five plants down there. Uh, and in order to haul out of Stanis- Stanislaus County and the, the, I mean, I knew more counties at that time. I forgot them all now. But because of deregulation, you don't have to. Mm-hmm. But uh, and then the guy with the big. What happened was one of the things that broke. Uh, Consolidate freightways as they had a tremendous amount of general authority for all over the United States and they had it on the books for millions of dollars. Well, on deregulation, that become a goose egg. It was useless. Cause I could go start up and contract to the same halls that they had, and that's where you got all these other splinter. Uh, companies that got big all of a sudden because they'd go in and undercut the rates, and because Consolidated and Mitchell Brothers and all of them had all a, I was going to go to work for Mitchell Brothers one time, and I went, and uh, a guy's name is Ben Cherrier, and uh, talking to him, and he says, Ah, he says, you don't know nothing about our trucking. He says, We wouldn't want you to work for us. And I saw Bud Mitchell and Jim Mitchell sometime after that, after I got bigger, you know, got pretty good size, told them the story
0: about Ben, and they just, they said, yeah. So we're gonna miss on that one, huh? <coughs> well, yeah. and it's not like success came easy, and I think that's worth well, touching on, because one of the things I really like to talk about is people taking a leap of faith, trying to do something, really getting after it. Sometimes you're gonna fail, but you can always start over and try again. I've talked numerous times on this podcast about getting fired and what that was like for me, but you just pick up and get after it again, and for you, you started to grow the company into the 80s, and there was some bumps along the way that happened. Uh, Talk a little bit about what that was like. Well, you got ups and
1: downs, and uh, your economy regulates what's going to happen, Um. The, the There's various things we started getting quite a bit bigger when um, your aunt, your uncle's, your mom all got into the company, full bore tilt. We started growing quite a bit more. Um, and then the driver shortage has hit. So then you can't get enough qualified drivers, so you start trying to train drivers more than you were. Um, Right now, nationwide, we're about 180-some thousand drivers short Mm -hmm. to fill the seats. And you don't have to be a whiz kid to read the papers and all the – Periodicals around to see that. Uh, That's first and foremost in moving freight is where we're going to get get the drivers. So you have we shrunk down quite a bit about 40 trucks to what we were because and we thought okay, and now then we've changed our our model that we're doing. Uh, Our trucks are almost all new fairly new um, and that the drivers are, are coming more to us we're changing where we're getting our drivers and how that's working and it's working really well um, so you know it's an ever changing industry uh, like you're seeing mills coming up and down Jesus, it's, a, it's horrible to go into Glendale and see the a mill that's been there 70 years, 60-some years. Scrap iron.
0: Mm-hmm. And decided to just shut it down and yeah, and move on and yeah. go ahead and focus on some of the other things. And Now then, a hemp
1: a hemp grower has got it. And no he's, kidding. He's, dry, he's drying hemp in those big brand-new dryers they got.
0: Well, I guess the good news is at least someone's using it, and it's not sitting there empty. I don't know yeah. that it's the smell of uh, we, lumber going into town, but... But, you know, with the
1: timber industry and the, the government, uh, I don't know what you want to call them, the liberals or, I don't know, the environmentalists shut the timber industry down to where they, the price of logs and the availability of logs is uh, making it to where it's hard to, hard to get the product to make the, the product what they need to sell. So the state of Oregon and Northern California and the private timber is going to be cut out probably within the next five to ten years. So
0: then they're going to have to figure out what to do. Yeah, we're going to end up in an interesting situation when people need wood products. And maybe we don't need them at some point, but I don't really see that happening yet. Then where are they going to get the wood products when there's no mills left? Yeah. Now then the big buzzword is, is
1: that they're making... Panels out of hemp.
0: It is an interesting <coughs> product, and they are able to use it for a lot of different things. And I don't really know. They're also making it. ethanol out of hemp. Yeah,
1: concrete. But what's the cost to making ethanol? The, the cost of making uh, ethanol out of corn and stuff is uh, not cost effective. Hmm. And there's no proof. It's just like you know, all of our trucks. A hundred percent of our trucks now. The run in, into California has got urea on them. And, when, and urea is supposed to, and it just goes into the exhaust system itself. And the exhaust system is elaborate. It's very expensive. It's $12,000 for one box. And uh, now state of California is saying, well, gee, you know, that urea, that's poisonous. And you're putting that into our air. And we're gonna you're we're gonna have to figure out some other way of cleaning up the exhaust, the NOx and the carbon. Well, voila. Didn't you know that urea is poisonous? It's 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 acid. It's made it's made out of fertilizer and the fertilizer it's made out of is made out of propane. You wanna breathe propane all day long? Well that's what it's made out of. Yeah. And uh, now that they're, they're telling the truck manufacturers, well, you got to have less NOx and less this, but you can't use rea- urea anymore.
0: And so it's uh, always something that you have to worry about. Well, you know, they're,
1: they're so concerned about the stuff here like straws, going to ban straws. But yet, the people in San Francisco, Los Angeles, Indonesia, all over the world is polluting our ocean with garbage. There's 900 miles island out in the middle of the ocean between L.A. and Hawaii. There's nothing but garbage.
0: Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me. every, Every night, they got another tug taking another barge out there and offloading it. Yeah, it's a huge problem, but nobody wants to talk about those problems they want to talk about. Right, but the masses want to talk about straws and lids and everything else, which I, I always make the point of, you've been to how many birthday parties? Every single birthday party, it's nothing but plastic toys. We're worried about a plastic straw that's this big. Meanwhile, go to the store and try and get a birthday present for a kid under the age of 12 And try and find something that isn't solid plastic. I mean, everything around. This is plastic. This computer's plastic. That's, I mean, everything. It's all plastic. Yeah. And we wonder why there's a problem. And yet we decide to pick on straws, which maybe we need to start somewhere. I don't know what the answer is, but it is. I say start out in the
1: ocean. Yeah. Well, they've already proven that they can take garbage and make gasoline
0: out of it. Well, that's going to be the big thing, is the, and I know there's some companies out there working on it already and some of them are figuring it out but when they can figure out how to take all that trash and plastic and turn it into something useful that's going to be where it's at
1: well up at brooks oregon they got that big co-generating plant up there right there at that exit where you go to pilot on one side and that big generating plant on the other side Mm -hmm. and marion county that's where the biggest percentage if it's got a btu's the energy in it that's where it goes and they co-generate it with it sure, they have to put some natural gas in with it to help keep it fired. But it comes out of there as potash. Then they sell the potash. Potash they take out of there, they take it up there at Woodburn, right there behind the scales where the big truck scales are, and that's all stuff. And then they take and sell that to the farmers and put it back out on the field. It's potash.
0: Hmm. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. So I want to ask you, back to family business and you know it was touch and go at times and you guys had to make a decision uh in there whether to keep going or you know do like some of these mills have done just close up shop what was it that kept you guys going what is what 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 was it that kept you guys going that you decided you know well, let's, we- let's make another run at this thing and, and see what you can do because if i mean i can think back at times in my life where you know, when I was young, our family didn't have a lot. We did fine. But back in the early 80s, you know, it, it was it was thin for the most part. I mean, you 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 got what you absolutely had to have and that was it. And as time went along, the business did better and better and and things grew and a little more comfortable and able to do a few more things and it was really life-changing. I mean, I got to watch it happen as I got older right? because I got to see it when I was younger where most of us were getting by. And then by the time I got out of high school, it was a completely different situation where definitely more comfortable. And now you guys are, have even grown tremendously since the late nineties. And so what, what was it that kept you guys going in those tough times where you could have just closed up shop? Well,
1: I don't. I've never been. uh, My dad never taught me how to quit. I guess that's. uh, And so, if we'd, uh, if we'd just shut up shop, a lot of people would have lost their livelihoods. Um, Our kids uh, would have had to figure out what to do differently. Um, And and our terminal, all of our life is on the ranch. I mean, it's right there. So you can't sell it. You could sell the assets, like the the trucks. Uh, but as far as the buildings and everything, that's part of my ranch. That's part of your grandma's inheritance. And so, and I never did ever think about what happens if we can't make it. That never has entered in the 40 some years. I never. I mean, we've had some tough times, real tough times, but the family kept it together, and we just put our heads down and our backsides up, and we we kept our chin up, and we just stepped out, stayed at it. We had a chance time a, a chance to sell one time for a lot of money, a lot of money, just the company. I wouldn't. The property belongs to your grandma and I. And we didn't. We would not sell it. We talked talked it over the kids about it, and they didn't want to work for somebody else. They didn't want to move. Uh, so no, we don't want to sell, cause we knew what the end game of the person that wanted to buy it was, and what the record of that person wanted to buy it, and so we says no. Um as far as if we sold the assets of the company and kept the terminals and stuff, we could lease it out in a heartbeat. It's a most, I could never have sat down with a paper and pencil and drawn out a perfect spot to put a truck terminal any better than where we're at. If you go to the north to Canyonville, it don't work. If you go to the south to Grants Pass, it don't work because your hours of service and where you gotta be. It's just, it's the most amazing thing. People have tried to figure out how to do what we do and they can't get it done.
0: And it wasn't like someone had some grand plan. It just happened to be that there's a town where you lived and there was property. Correct me if I'm wrong. You happen to get a truck, starts to take off, you end up with another truck and another truck and it's just based there because that's where you lived. And it just so happens that it's a great place well, to have that location.
1: Yeah, uh, the fact that I recognize how to put it together to make it work, and to be truthful with you, Andy and your mom and your aunt have brought a lot to the party. In other words, they got good ideas. You're. Cousins, Pat and Ryan and Christina. Christina's, she's kind of a silent gal back there. She just does more work than you could ever believe. But Pat and Ryan have got good vision about what we need to do, what would make it better. They brought another dimension into our company that I didn't have, and your, your, uncle and you know the, the my my chis- children didn't have. Uh, and we're smart enough to listen to the ideas of everybody. Instead of saying, no, by God, it's my company and this way I'm going to do it. And I don't want to hear about it. That's how you get better though. That's how we get better. And you can go, I talk to the drivers every day because I'm more out of the office than I'm in the office anymore. And with that big ranch, I love the ranch. um, And I'm down at my shop down below, and so I get a chance to talk to the drivers. And I always always want them to come over and talk to me if they're available and got time. Because I can find out what they like and don't like and stuff. But you can't talk to one of them. If you can find one of them that's really unhappy being there, think we're not a a good company to be with and be part of the family. Uh, I'll buy you a steak dinner.
0: It's a pretty unique situation that you could take a town of 700 people and end up with the company the size that it is. How many trucks is there running right now? You said it was up to 180-something.
1: Well, we were at one, 180 or 175. We're down to about 140, 145.
0: But we're starting to go the other way now. But either way, it's a good size operation yeah. in a very small town where you have a mill and you have a trucking company. And really, one of the, the lifelines to the town and uh, helping keep the town going uh, with what it is there. Well, it,
1: uh, we're building a new uh, Little League baseball park in town, and that's because uh, Ryan and Pat's had a vision of what we need in our town. We have one really nice one that uh, was there when you kids was little mm-hmm. and played in, and we need that one. Plus, We need another really good substantial one. And uh, it's just about done. Uh, We got the outer fences up on the field. And uh, now we just got to put the poster in for the backstop and that. And uh, once we get that up, we'll be able to play on it this coming year. But uh, that was all done with uh, local money. And the Superior... Leased it. Ryan put it all together and they, they leased it for a dollar a year. Plus, we have to keep insurance on it, liability insurance.
0: It's been pretty amazing to watch when um, you mentioned Superior and Swanson Group, what it's called now, uh, and you guys at AM Transport. I don't even know how many times we've mentioned A&M Transport, but I, that's not really what we're here to do. But for those people listening, that is the trucking company. What those two companies have been able to do for that small town. And a lot of people don't even know the town, Glendale, Oregon. They might think we're talking about Glendale, California or Glendale, Arizona or wherever, but it's where I grew up and people don't even understand what happens there or, or they make fun of, oh, that's close to Wolf Creek or whatever. But it's amazing to see what those two companies have been able to do for that town, whether it's working on the softball fields or the football field or the concession stand. The amount of time, money, and energy that has been put in completely changed what that little town has been like well do you ever think about that
1: it's it's I've had a lot of of thought and I've done a lot of work on on all of it but most of the thoughts been by the younger generation and I'm just going to say that should cover everybody in the family Uh, and every generation of the younger generations from me everybody's about younger than me anymore Uh, but it, uh, they get the ideas and then they say well we're gonna we want to do this and I think well okay I gotta move that excavator in I gotta move a cat in and then I go in there and I spend quite a few hours but I didn't have the idea somebody else had the idea and somebody else is finding the, the money to do it whether it be out of our company or, or somebody else's company or however I'm not doing it I'm, I'm past that and I've, I've passed that torch on long, long time ago. <coughs> when they built that stadium and stuff, I have no idea how many hundred hours we put in down there, welded all that stuff together and everything. But somebody else has got the idea and are willing to do it because there's not a lot of people with ideas and the, the uh, ambition to carry that idea through. And I'm, I'm proud of my family for doing that. Uh, I, I can't take hardly any credit for except for work.
0: Have you ever just stopped and thought about the impact of what you guys have been able to do as far as impacting the community? No, no. I, I don't want to dwell on that.
1: I, it's, you know, I, it's one of the things that I'm so proud of my kids for. And uh, not just my kids but my grandkids my kids are all my kids The Mm -hmm. kids in Glendale are all my kids I I love all the kids in there and uh, one of my success stories uh, here lately and I was a a naysayer on it I didn't think it had happened our cattle I'm really proud of our cattle they're all Simmental and Angus Cross we bred them up to where they're uh, really uh, mellow and this young kid, just he's in the same grade as Docks and Crew, my youngest grandchildren, as uh, two grandsons, great grandchildren, great grandchildren, yeah. And uh, anyways, in their class, and he wanted to buy a steer, and of course, you know, I was in four H forever with you kids and and everybody, and I I just thought, can't you do a pig the first year because he's never been to fair and stuff. Nope, going to do a steer. His brothers are doing pigs. So he come out, and his name's Wyatt. And I says, uh, well, come out, and you can look where we round up and stuff. So he came out, and he's, yep, I'm going to do a steer. So we picked out a really a nice one that weighed 505 pounds when he took it. We've got our own scales. He, I made a deal with him on the pay and all this stuff. I want to make it pretty easy on him. So he took it, and I says, you got a job, train that steer. Three days later, he picked it up on a Thursday evening. And on a Sunday afternoon, his mother sent me a picture. And he had a halter on that steer. And he was feeding it grain. Three days. Eight days later, he had a halter on it. He was brushing it with a brush. And feeding the grain, I thought I'll never ever be a naysayer again when it comes to these young kids. But the cattle are so mellow that um, and he's gaining really well, and uh, his he'll make he'll make weight for the county fair, and I'm going to be there when he shows it.
0: You going to try and buy it? No, <laughs> no. Um, not even throwing in an extra bid or two to help help him out in his first year, oh, I know I been, didn't say that, Jason. <laughs> I know you didn't been, say you've that. you've Been known to bid on a few animals, and I've even yeah. been known to <laughs> bid against you a few times when you didn't know it. This was the first year that I didn't go to the fair and bid on animals. Man, we could talk for hours about 4-H and what that means for kids and oh. what we had a chance to be a part of. I I know that for me. There's a couple things in my life that I feel like were were very important. Um, And one of those was definitely 4-H. Learning how to take care of your animal. Learning how to show your animal, be proud of the animal, feed the animal, do all those things. And the other one was cross-country because it was just me. And it was learning how to push myself beyond what I thought was possible.
1: We got a new FFA advisor this year, and I'm really happy about her. I'm on her board she wanted an advisory board and I volunteered to it and I said, whatever you need, I, I'm, I'm your guy because I believe the FFA program, not just for animals. Everybody thinks 4-H and FFA is just for animals. I mean, there's so many things. There's books full of things you can do in both organizations. And I'm so excited and she's got some really good students and she's a good teacher and we need good people in our school system and and i think she's just going to be a crackerjack i'm so excited about it because and uh, our four-h group we're going to have about ten to twelve in it this year so um, we're going to be doing good. i'm excited about that we got our sports programs coming on and um Seems like grandma and I don't have any time because like crew's wrestling now, and then they'll start that um, club basketball here in Grands Pass.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And they'll crew and Knox will be playing on that. I was talking
0: to grandma about how many, literally thousands of games you guys have been to, not just for your own kids, but for your grandkids and now your great grandkids, and it's just mind boggling. I, I know that was. Super important to me growing up, when you guys were always in the stands, and always meant a lot, and uh, it's amazing the amount of miles you guys have traveled oh, watching yeah. games and being supportive.
1: I can't believe grandparents that, that don't have any more concern than just to sit at home and watch some stupid TV show and don't watch their grandkids, or and before that probably didn't watch their kids. Although, you know, I played sports in junior high and high school, and I don't think my dad ever saw but one or two games of everything I played. Uh, It was just a different era. Mm -hmm. Sports was not a big deal. Um, But to me, like, uh, Rory, uh, Nate, Gage has got a swimming turn. You ever watch a cross you ran cross country. Mm-hmm. And we went and watched that. That's like watching grass grow. <laughs> I
0: you know? thought it
1: was exciting. But I ran and so I understand yeah. it a little bit more. But so we'd run from hill to hill, you know, or valley to valley. And so we went back up to Lane College. Of course, we watched him in quite a few of his track meets and stuff down here. He's a freshman this year. And uh I says I just saw Jason go by here just
0: a few years ago, you know. Well, I was pulling in, and I started to tell my <laughs> uh, 11-year-old that, uh, yeah, your dad ran here, and all of a sudden I started counting and realized it was 21 years ago. I'm <laughs> like, man. Yeah. Oh, it's uh, even flying by faster for you, I'm sure. But, uh, yeah, one of the reasons I asked you about the impact is because one of the reasons I really want to do this podcast is because I want to encourage people to do things A they didn't think were possible, and also, you know, help people understand the impact they can have. It doesn't have to be huge. You talked about, you know, having the kid come down and he ends up with a steer, and you end up, you know, saying, "Oh, I'm never going to be a naysayer ever again." Your impact is way bigger than that. I know you don't really want to talk about it, but it's huge. But a lot of it is because you decided to just take time to do something for someone at some point, whether it was push dirt for someone or haul something somewhere or give someone a hand pounding a a fence post in or financially help someone out. And over time, it just had this bigger and bigger and bigger impact. And the impact is, is ginormous. I don't even know if ginormous describes it. And I know you wouldn't say that, but it is. And it's just amazing what, and I'm gonna say one person because I'm sitting in front of one person, but the impact that one person can have because that person has an impact on the second person and that person has an impact on the next person and then it just goes from the next one to the next one into to the next one. And ultimately, in this case, I feel like made the surrounding community a much better place to be. Well, I hope so. I uh,
1: I know you've spent a lot of time on the ranch out that your great-grandma and grandpa had, and I've spent th- hundreds of thousands of hours working on it, making it a better place, and it's one of the most beautiful ranches now. It's all irrigated, um, and I tell people, you know, I know that when I die that I can look back and say, I've made this country a better place on this ranch. It's better place than what it was because it's growing nice things and uh, I'll be buried on a ranch. I'm gonna be cremated and, and I'm gonna have them scatter me around one end for the other. And I told everybody, it's kinda, they, the kids think I'm sad, it's sadistic, but I said, if the grass dies, that's where they know I'm gonna hit I've been sprayed onto with an airplane. <laughs> If it's real green, they can give me that credit, you know. So, (laughs) one way or another, they'll know where I've been. But anyway, it's, yeah, you gotta make an impact and do something, but I I get really upset at these uh, parents, uh, grandparents, that don't participate with their grandkids. They just Mm -hmm. don't do nothing,
0: you know? No positive encouragement, not setting a good example. And I feel like for us, obviously you're setting a great example. And then I i don't think it's a doubt, there's not a doubt in my mind at all that my success, the success that I have had has come from learning from all of you guys ahead of me. Because I think if I don't have that, then I obviously would be a completely different person.
1: Well, you know, I'm so proud of what you've done with your life, I remember when you started to go to college up at Umpqua, and you come to me, and, and uh, I don't know if you remember this or not, but I do, and uh, you said something about you wanted to go into radio, and you was doing that little radio station there at the high school. Remember when I picked up that equipment up mm-hmm. at Benson High School for you? And and I was so proud because I said, you know, I always wanted to do radio. Um, I, I, I just was so proud that you wanted to do something like that, and you had a goal, and uh, it, it was, uh, you know, instead of just kind of floundering around, you, you had a vision of what you wanted to do. You was good in high school, and uh, then when you went to work for Markham up there in, in Roseburg uh, Communications, why you you did really well up there, and uh, you've done well everywhere you've gone, and I. I think that
0: little radio station we had there, Glenda, was a two-watt. I think it was one, actually, one? yeah. Whatever happened to all that equipment? I don't know. I think it's so sad that they didn't keep it going because it allowed a couple of us to end up getting into radio just by having that little bit of experience at the high school station. That's how I ended up working Roseburg. The minute I said that, he said, oh, you're one of those kids. I saw you guys on the news. Yeah, yeah I'll let you come in, turn here. Why not? And, you know, school isn't for everyone. No, uh, some people need and don't mind working in the mill or driving truck or whatever that is or welding. There's so many different other things you can do. So to have a high school radio station, to have a wood shop, to have a welding class, it's all very valuable. But unfortunately, you don't always have the people to run it or the people with the passion to take care of it. And we happen to have that person at that time. Yeah. And he left awesome. and it all just kind of went downhill. But you know what? He's up in Elmira and he's got one going up there and doing very well. So. Yeah, I think that's just it. I think it just kind of went by the wayside. Well, I've said, just like the ranch, you know, your kids always spend
1: a lot of time on it, and now we've got grandkids, great-grandkids uh, that spend a lot of time on it. And I said, well, I've never made a dime on this ranch, but I've never had to go to jail and get one of my grandkids or my kids out of jail. Yeah, uh, They've always had plenty to do right here instead of raising hecks hex around places. and Well, they... They've done their share of things, you know. I, I remember when <laughs> easy, <laughs> when, easy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I yeah. I'll be quiet, you know. But uh, it. Uh, I don't even know. What you're it was good say, fun, though. You know what? Uh, what you kids always
0: did never hurt nobody, and and. Uh, but you know, what you say you didn't make a dime off the ranch, and obviously the trucking company is there to make money and feed people. But the the lessons and the things learned on that ranch. Yeah, and people who learned how to work hard in high school bucking hay there because hundreds of kids oh, over I the years to you guys, yeah. bucked hay there who have gone on to do amazing things. And so, when you say it hasn't made a dime, it has, just not the traditional way that you would think of. Right? You know? Right? So. Well, I guess we should probably, I mean, we could go on for a very long time and I would have no problem doing that, but I know grandma's inside and uh, it's probably, probably seal. it's in seal and it's uh, getting close to, to somebody's bedtime, I'm sure. And um, it's been a lot of fun chatting with you out here. You I'm bet. glad you came over and let's end it this way. I want you to uh, think for a second and come up with a, a bit of encouragement or uh, advice for someone listening who is considering... Uh, Should I do this? Should I not do that? Whatever this or that is. We've kind of touched on it already, like quitting is not an option. But what would you tell someone, kind of in a nutshell, to wrap this thing up? To do what? As far as a piece of advice or encouragement for anyone out there listening? Well, I don't know. uh, I'm not much of an advisor
1: as far as advice, but... Find something you like to do. That I, I know people that have had jobs, and I'm not going to name what types of jobs because it wouldn't serve any purpose, but I know people that have had jobs that worked 30-some years at that same job, doing the same thing, and hated every day they went to work. Now, I could just never imagine myself doing that. I've had jobs that I didn't care for. Jobs that I wanted to find something better. But I did a... <coughs> excuse me. I did 100% when I was at that job. I give it everything I had until I found something else that I wanted. And that's what a lot of... It, it's hard to get people to show up for work today. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't want to be there. I just, And... They wonder why they don't have anything. Uh, One of the biggest competitions right now for an employer is the US government because you can make almost as much money doing nothing as you can for going to work. Mm -hmm. But um, you just gotta find what you like to do. But you might have to take a job doing something you don't really care to stay at, but then figure out what you want. And go do it. And then oftentimes the rest will just take care of itself. It'll take care of itself.
0: Well, that's yeah. a great place to uh, wrap it up. Unless you want to add anything else nope. to that. I didn't mean to cut you off. It sounds like you want to say something else, but if nope. you want to go for it. you're good. I'm good. Well, I really appreciate everything you've done for us for all of these years. And, uh, it's been, it's been great learning over the years from you guys and everyone else. Our whole family has has been a positive influence. And, um, I'm glad I got to have you over and we got to do this.
1: Well, I'm lucky to be able to come over and visit with my grandson. Great grandkids. love it. Your grandma, I tell you, she's got a calendar, and it's on this date we do this, on this date we do that, and we haven't done enough with this one. And this one's got a ballet dance lesson here. And so we're on on the road a lot.
0: Keeps you moving and shaking at 81 years old. And maybe when you're 91, (coughs) I can have you back in here and we'll do it again. I mean, we can do it again before then, but I'm saying, you know, when you turn 91, because that's going to happen, we'll do it again. All right. All right. All right. There we go. Garage Talk Podcast from South Grants Pass. And uh, this has been a fun one. You can uh, rate and review the podcast, especially on Apple. It's easy to do. There's five stars. Give me five stars if you wouldn't mind, or four, whatever. Share it with your friends. Garagetalkpodcast.com is the website, and you can get the podcast just about anywhere. Apple, Android, Stitcher. Tune in spotify i forget because there's so many different options out there but check it out garagetalkpodcast.com and appreciate you listening and uh, we'll talk to you again soon from the garage